You're listening to the Skiff Podcast. On today's episode, Skiff founder and CEO Rafid Ali interviews Adam Harris, CEO of Cloudbeds, a hotel tech company that has raised $250 million since 2016. They delve into the impact of COVID-19 on the travel tech industry and fundraising, as well as the lack of layoffs in the industry despite pain points like mismanagement and the need for labor. The conversation also covers the changing deal structures in private capital and the increasing activity of private equity in mergers and acquisitions. For more like this and the latest news in travel tech, visit skiff.com. Enjoy the conversation. All right. Welcome, folks. Welcome to another episode of Skift uh, Travel Podcast. Uh, thank you for joining. Uh, my name is Rafat Ali, CEO and founder of Skift. I am in conversation with Adam Harris, who is the CEO and co-founder of Cloudbeds. Uh, Cloudbeds is a, um, a hotel tech company that uh, has, has grown quite large since it started in 2012. It's 10 years, uh, Adam, right? That's right. It's been 10 years, and it, and it offers a full suite of services um, for the hospital for, for, for the hotel sector uh, Adam just give a quick introduction of what cloud beds does and um, and that will probably take care of most of the introduction about cloud beds oh sure you know well first of all thanks so much for having me and, and, and it's it's a pleasure it's amazing I know you're a dad too I have three kids I have two real ones and then I have a teenage cloud beds which just turned 10 so thanks for uh Thanks for bringing that up. It still makes me pinch myself a little bit. You know, Cloudbeds is a uh, hotel tech company that enables hosts and hoteliers all over the world to basically better their lives. If you think about what this industry is all about when it comes to running a hotel, it's a gritty business. It's 24-7, 365 days a year. And effectively, we simplify down um, all the things that you need to do every single day. And we put that into a really nice platform that makes their lives easier. Um, and, and we've been incredibly successful at that and, and, and have grown up over the last decade. And so uh, to use a little bit of the industry lingo, you offer, uh, I'm looking through your, your website, you offer uh, um, p- a property management system, a channel manager, booking engine, revenue management, finance and payments, Marketplace, digital marketing, guest engagement. So, sort of the full stack, if you will. Full stack. Um, a lot yeah. of ac- a lot of three letter acronyms that our industry loves. We, we combine them into one. And so, the reason why we're having this conversation has less to do with the daily business of cloud beds, but very much building on your experience as a as an entrepreneur, as a as a as a startup guy who's raised uh, two hundred fifty million dollars in the last. I'm looking since twenty. 16 so you 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 did wait for a few years before you raised your series a after yep. starting and uh, the last round you did with series d was with softbank vision fund obviously a very high profile very large fund that is invested in very high profile companies including in travel uh, as well you're one of them oyo is another um yep. i'm guessing there are a few others that i um i think there's some- uber grab Ola, o- oyo you keep going right yeah. Yanola. <clears throat> Right, you know, yes. And so the last round was in October 2021. The previous round, Series C, uh, which is fascinating, uh, was $82 million round that closed in March 2020. So um, so let's start a little bit there, and then we'll go into some of the larger issues on the fundraising environment today and the exit environment today, particularly as it relates to travel tech. But sure. So you raised um, 
small rounds. A Series A was a three million, Series B was a nine million, Series C was suddenly you upscaled. I guess I don't know if that's the right term. Um, was uh, March twenty twenty. So I'm guessing this was in conversation way before COVID. It, absolutely. Uh, so we we call them the two miracles. Actually, the last two rounds of of fundraising are were, were two miracles. Um, and we can talk about why we why we call them miracle. I think the first one, which was Viking, um, so Viking came in. Viking's a, a world class um, private equity slash crossover fund out of New York City, um, with with really good heritage. Anyway, we we started talking to them late um, late first quarter of 2020, and it was on the byproduct of us having tremendous success in in some of the new areas that we were focused on and covid didn't exist we were going to announce at itb right we we heard this rumblings of this this virus uh or 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 whatever you wanted to call it coming out of china and and that's really what it was and so Mm -hmm. what what happened as we got into march and we were doing all the legal due diligence and ready to to wire the money um, New York and California locked down or was, was rumored to lock down and ITB was canceled two days between, before we got, we got the cash. So yeah. uh, I lost all my hair in that two weeks prior to us actually receiving the fundraise. No, you know, it, it was, um, there was some very powerful conversations that were had between our investor, um, and partner over at Viking and Cloudbeds and, you know, I remember at one point in time asking them point blank, are you going to pull your funding? And they said, we've never done that. After we've issued a term sheet, we've never done that. And irrespective of whether this is a one-year, two-year, three-year thing, we think you're going to be the biggest thing in hotel tech ever. And, and therefore, we're committed. And I was like, okay, I believe you sort of, um, but proof is in the pudding when the wire hits the bank account. Mm-hmm. And it did. And And it was a blessing. It enabled us to immediately turn around and launch Hospitality Helps, which helped put 55,000 nurses, doctors, police, police, firefighters, whoever, into hotel beds mm-hmm. with an initiative that was our nonprofit that we started at the beginning of COVID. And and we wouldn't have been able to do it without that cash. Um, we were able to give um, incredible relief to our hotels uh, from a from a billing perspective, like actually say, just hold, focus on your business, pay us later. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we did that through the first six months. And, and as a result, um, that capital and that partnership with Viking enabled us to have a growth here in 2020. We actually grew as an organization, despite uh, mm-hmm. the immediate shock of, of, of the system. And, and I'll never forget that first miracle. Um, that mm-hmm. was a big one for sure. And then when uh, I'm guessing because it says you closed the second or announced the second round in October 2021, and it was a large one, yep. uh, which means that you probably started raising relatively soon into COVID after you closed your your Series C. You know, so fundraising is a is a game of relationships that are long term. It's not like you just go to market and say, "I'm raising money." Hey, two weeks later, you get cash. It doesn't exist. I mean, if you look at some of the big rounds that come come about. You know, there was a three-year relationship with the main partner at SoftBank who ultimately funded us. And that was from days of, of attending your conferences or other conferences in the industry, catching up every quarter, every six months, and then ultimately letting things align. And the second miracle would be, you know, the success that the company saw on the back 
on the backdrop of a recovery in, in COVID. And so despite, you know, having a slow growth year in COVID year 2020, 21 was fantastic. 22 was superb. And, and so all that momentum we carried created the second miracle. And that was SoftBank funding us at the like most opportune valuation perspective um and, and from a timing perspective and so i definitely get some pats on the back for timing two of our last rounds but nevertheless you know the businesses is is performing and so great companies get capital if they need it um, it doesn't matter if you're in a in a in a bull market or a bear market you will always have great companies having access to capital it might take longer. It might be structured slightly different. It might um, come about in new ways or creative ways. And, and it's not necessarily as traditional. We just came off a 10-year run uh, or five-year run of some of the best fundraising environments ever because interest rates were so low, right? Yeah. And, and, yeah. and that's a byproduct. So today's market's a little different. The Mr. pendulum has swung. The pendulum has swung back. So let's get into it. So you and I had had a, had a had a just a background conversation uh, maybe last month, and we were this is how this podcast is coming coming about, which was a very interesting conversation. So, uh, and we've done a series of stories and skipped on what the larger tech layoffs that have happened over the last three to six months, um, and while travel continues to boom as a sector. Even as we're sitting here in Fe in mid Feb 2023, the earnings season is on. We're hearing the public company CEOs and 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 uh, in jet and Airbnb just blew through their quarter, and and the, yep. the, the hotel companies, airlines are having the largest um, revenue quarters, etc. Um, the, the the series of stories that we've been trying to grapple ahead around on Skift is. Um, well, if, the, if there's a larger tech slowdown, there has to come to travel tech. So what's your sense today of what the larger tech environment means for travel tech specifically? Oh, this is a big debate. I, I don't get caught up on large tech. Um, I think it's a great indicator and we should use it for in many different ways. You know, large tech has, has represents 2% of the entire job force, right? So when you see all these big layoffs coming from Amazon and Meta and, and, and whatnot, that's supposed to be indicative of like the overall job market. And that's not the case. That's 2% of the jobs, right? So mm -hmm. when, when you look at these high tech, high growing organizations that have over hired over the last five years, I don't necessarily think that's a great or perfect health check to the rest of the world, right? You can see unemployment at, at historical lows. For me, um, travel's countercyclical. I'm really, I'm really bullish on that. I think there's enough tailwinds to suggest that we should see continuation of 2022 and in, into 2023 and 2024. Full recovery and travel by 2024. I think all the economists who were saying 2023, 2024 recoveries coming in the beginnings of COVID were right. Right. I mean, I think it literally did take, you know, two to three years of full recovery. So from a tech landscape, if you look at, and you mentioned this earlier, you, you have great stock performance coming out of all of the major OTAs and hotel brands and in, 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 in travel-related businesses like the airlines and Carnival Cruise and things like that, that are showing a much, much further acceleration than the S&P 500, right? Mm -hmm. Airbnb, not so much, but the rest of them are sort of leading the pack. Fundamentals on their earnings, by the way, is still very good, even if the stock performance isn't good. 
Great, right? And and so like there's there's something under there's something underlining there that's pulling back institutional support, but and we don't need to go there. But like the point is, we've got great momentum as a as a travel industry, and I, and I'm I'm loving that. That trickles down into travel tech, specifically from a fundraising and capital perspective. It makes it a little bit easier because I think what you can point to is a lot of long-term positive notes, right? There's a lot of capital in the boomer population that's going to eventually go to the millennial population and so on and so on. You've got millennial travelers and, and, and Gen Z who are very focused on experience travel. That's boosting the travel profiles of, uh, during hotel stays. And it's, it's meaning new forms of travel. You have more supply that's coming in the market than ever. And, and the growth rates over the last few years has been such an accelerated manner. I think that carries forward. So I'm, I'm all in travel. I think investors look at travel tech as it's a one and a half trillion dollar industry, one of the top 10 industries in the world. Man, we got to put money into this. Let's pour money. And so what you tend to see is much more on the consumer side. You, you've got, you know, Hopper raising a ton of money and killing it and doing great things. You have trip action and some of the like B2B corporate traveling. Again, that's booming groups, mice booming right now, or at least becoming uh, into a, a trend line like that. And so it makes sense why you're seeing capital. I think the problem with our industry in, in the difficulty is it's not concentrated. This is a global industry. There are nuances by market. And so scaling to global levels, despite these huge market opportunities, is very challenging. You can be a great US business to be, but to be a great EU business and the US and LATAM and Asia takes a lot of capital, a lot of sophistication and scale. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think people hit ceilings. And so you tend to see a lot of early stage capital going into travel tech. And then there are these big gaps. And then you see a lot of late stage once things have established themselves. And, and I think that's a dynamic that's going to carry forward. But there is opportunity for a lot of mid-action, and that's starting to happen as of recent, which I'm really excited. These are the two to $10 million businesses that are starting to gain a little bit of traction. Maybe they're creating a little niche for themselves. Um, those point solutions become potentially platforms themselves or, or, or horizontally oriented sort of um, suites. And, and we're starting to see some of those pop up. And I, and I love it because that's where the innovation comes. That innovation comes from, you know, more and more entrepreneurs not afraid to fail, getting out there and trying to push an industry forward because you and I both know that our industry tends to be a little lagging when it yeah. comes to defining our future, right? Yeah. Um, let's focus on investors and then we'll come to the other points that you're raising. So, sure. um having been in the industry covering for a long time, um, you know, the investors in travel tech are, at least in my opinion, in some buckets. One is the generalist venture funds that get excited about travel periodically. Yep. There are um, travel specialists, of which only a few exist. Um, their ventures, maybe a, a few others, and there are some angels in the space as well. Um, some angels with, with capability to invest larger amounts as well. Um, anyway, uh, instead of me saying it, in your mind, what are the various categories that look at travel since you've raised this multiple times? Yeah, yeah. So e most generalist funds have SaaS or uh, 
software as a subscription focus, right? Mm -hmm. Software is is readily available and, and readily accessible and deployable in the travel tech space, right? You've mm -hmm. got some incumbents that are very big. You can read the reviews on them. We don't need to talk about that. And then you have some challengers like Cloudbeds who are up and coming and who are trying to dethrone some of the, the legacy tech systems that are out there. Um, in travel, the bucket for very industry-focused venture is much earlier stage. You do not have late stage focused funds, right? And and I don't think you ever will because there's not enough there's not enough deal flow to really want that high concentration of of interest. So, but on specifically an, travel tech versus general travel. General, tra yes. So, like, I'm talking about travel tech. So, like, general travel, even general travel. If I'm trying to build a new consumer facing app, I don't think you're ever going to have a a agnostic fund across all scale, all say, sizes, meaning sure. like from seed to scale, and, uh, because there's not, I don't think there's enough opportunities to just have a hundred percent focus. Uh, there's literally not enough deal flow, right? And in in the scale of it would be really risky from a diversification perspective. But you have plenty of generalist funds that like to dabble in software, like to dabble in consumer, like to dabble in hybrid models. And I think those are coming in and in, in, in dipping their toes in the water a little like F prime, for example, mm -hmm. phenomenal fund, you know, great leadership, great team, and they're doing deals in travel and then they're doing deals outside of travel, right? You have Peakspan, one of my funds that's in my, my deal. You know, Matt loves the travel industry. He's done a couple travel companies like Oki and Cloudbeds, right? And, and so, like, they, they're looking for deals in travel, but they're also doing deals in other verticals as well. And, and I think that's really the future. Um, but I, I think it's totally realistic that you have groups like Thayer um, and some of the seed angels that you were representing, you're sort of, sort of um, referencing. Speak, yeah, referencing that that like to play in this because they've had experience in it, right? They have the network. They're able to sort of help um, launch per se, some of the early stage businesses. And so they're gonna exist too, and they're gonna have some great success as well. So um, in terms of what the macro environment today is, um, I think you have some strong views on, on uh, the funding environment for specifically travel tech startups. And yep. we, we talked about this last time. Um, you also wrote up some background for me for this for this interview purpose. And so um, in general, I guess, is the headline evaluation of the down is going to be as hard as it is in any other sector? Yeah, 100%. That's right. I mean, the valuations across the board are went from averages in the teens to single digits, right? And, and those single digits are shifting towards historical averages. That's a huge shock to a system when a founder was told at one point in time in the past that I'm, your company might be worth this dollar number. And to then have it cut in half in some cases, even more in others, uh, especially depending on your scale or your, or your size of organization, that changes the way you fundraise, that changes the way you structure a deal, that changes the, the time horizon. So it used to be that you should have enough cash for 18 months of runway. Now right. it's 36 months, right? So think about that. Like that is a huge difference in the amount of capital and or 
the spend profile that your organization has. So you're, you're managing for a different lever. Now, you used to be levering up for growth. Now you're levering against growth and efficiency. And those actually can be uh, counter punches to one another, right? right. So, so you, you have to be very, very mindful of the fact that you might never get back to that valuation that you were told about. You might have raised that evaluation that's higher than what you're worth today. And if you don't see um, great fundamentals in the organization and great unit economic improvement, you might still be there 36 months from now and then raise again. And you're like, man, I'm still getting the same valuation. And so it took 10 years, 10 years for the NASDAQ to reset itself from the 2001 yeah, financial crisis, right? So like the stock bubble, 10 years. So like, I don't think this is going to be one of those pendulums go to the opposite way for like 18 months and then swings back and we start seeing, you know, 100x multiples for snowflake like companies. And that's not going to happen ever again, at least not for the next five years. But it doesn't mean it won't reset. So I think in the next 36 months, we'll see a much more middle ground from the the, the extremes of 2020 and 2021 to this pendulum of we're a little bit more mature in how we think about it. Funds are a little bit more disciplined and the rewarding for good companies. So like the term unicorn, I think should evaporate. Yeah. And like the term centaur, which is a hundred million ARR business. I don't know why we like these fictitious creatures as startup founders, but like the centaur is a hundred million dollar ARR. I think people are going to be chasing the hundred million dollar ARR marker versus the billion dollar valuation in mm-hmm. a hundred million dollar ARR business is a billion dollar company that is a liquid billion dollar company that could transact at that assuming assuming a lot of things that um are, are are average and that's a company that potentially could go public too so there's so much more optionality for a company that's got good scale good fundamentals and the reality is the venture capitalists know this they know this they are like i have the world's best reset i no longer have to overspend for your high growth company anymore. I can spend average. And and like that dilemma is creating this massive spread between bid and ask. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, one of them has time and that's the venture capitalist. And the entrepreneur, if they're burning money and they're not profitable, does it, right? So like there's a ticking time bomb that is not in one's favor and that's causing conflict right now. And we hear it. I know a lot of friends who, who have very successful businesses who have gotten term sheets as of recent and they've been pulled at the last minute for some, some reason, market conditions or whatever. And that's becoming more normal or, you know, Hey, you know, I love your, I love your, I love the market. I love what you're trying to do. You know what? You're right. You are going to be worth that much. But if you don't do it in 36 months, I'm going to get a little bit extra love on my valuation and I'm going to reset it down. And there's so there's some really funny structure that's being used in creatively to yeah. just de-risk, right? Yeah. Uh, well, um, we haven't yet seen layoffs in travel tech, at least on the scale, I guess, in the startup world. Except for like, for instance, Adara got bought by Raid Kane for for pennies in the dollar, um, and um, I'm guessing their layoffs coming if they haven't already done layoffs as part of the the sale. Um, 
But you haven't, I'm trying to think of like, have we covered any layoffs? We've covered Vecasa, uh, which is, uh, you know, a, a vacation rental. They've done yep. layoffs in multiple rounds, which is obviously the worst way to do it. Um, and uh, maybe I think Sonder did something, if I'm not mistaken, those, uh, as a consumer hotel um, company. But why haven't you seen um, travel tech layoffs yet? Or you think that just there are not enough scale players to be able to do that? I don't think you're going to see anything with enough size to hit the radar. There, there are always going to be companies that are doing cuts yeah. for cost raisings, right? I think that that's an ongoing thing, and 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 that's probably a, a it can be a healthy thing too, right? And a prudent thing. And I think when you're running a business, it, it's sometimes hard to balance the communal or the familiar feeling of a business and then the actual business business side of it, right? right. Those get intersected when you build great culture. You know, from our from our perspective, I think what we're focused on is there's a lot of insulation with the travel tailwinds, right? You you mm-hmm. see these boomings, you see ADRs and Revpar and all those things hitting hitting milestones that we we should be celebrating. Um, but there are some real pain points that are plaguing our industry. We need labor to change. We need more people in hotels, working staff, and um, the cost of mortgages and utility in Europe are are through the roof, and that's causing a shock to the operating expense of these businesses. And so I think tech actually can be the savior for at least in the short period of time. And then we need to get these humans back into jobs. The The reality is because tech is enabling some of this change, I think uh, many of those jobs are, are somewhat protected as long as over hiring and, and isn't, isn't occurring. And, and I think Vacasa was a a byproduct of mismanagement, um, to be mm-hmm. honest with you, and you could see that in their in their performance and and, and whatnot, and 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 so like outside of um, outside of that one example, I don't know of of Sonder or, or what they did or or anything about their business, so I don't want to speak to that. But I but yeah. I think but I think what what I'm what I'm most excited about is you have to use the publicly traded analogs as indication of success, right? At least on a on a highest level perspective and and when you look at stocks performing that's a good sign if you start seeing the ceos of delta or marriott pulling back some of that bullishness i think that's probably a six-month indicator of what's going to start happening in private companies there's always a little bit of delay right Right. Um, in terms of the i want to talk a little bit about the deal structures you mentioned and, and how that's changed this is on the private capital side. And then on uh, on the exit side, I want to come to exits in a little bit as well. Um, yeah. and, and, uh, and, and I know you have some views on that as well. Um, so in terms of deal structure, uh, in general, in tech, I was listening to the All In podcast and they talk a lot about uh, this type of stuff. And um, they're saying some of the investors are still, and maybe this has changed the last few weeks and uh, after the layoffs have happened, where... If you still want a unicorn status, they'll give it to you, but they will sneak in a note, and I don't know the technicalities of it, yep. that they get more allocation when the, well, you explain, because I'm not the technical person here. Yeah, so basically they'll have, they'll, they'll, have, they'll have warrants or they'll have some kind of option to purchase more as milestones achieve at a discount, right? And so essentially they're able to juice their returns or their position and de-risk themselves by not saying you're worth a billion now they're saying yeah we'll give you a little credit for that and then we'll take a little bit of credit at a discount when you actually hit some of your milestones or 
if you fail to hit those milestones, they'll revert back and they'll get some extra allocation that will offset the valuation that they might have paid for. So it's really just a it's a way of making that bid ask get more aligned with a founder, right? So there's a lot of argument to say if you raised a round that was overpriced in the past, just reset the value. Just stop worrying about trying to build back up. Go have a conversation with your board and your investors and say, hey, we're misaligned. I'm here in my stake and the company's down here and you want me to go grow things. I don't have enough cash and I need to go raise more cash. And I didn't choose that the valuations were this high. You helped me get this valuation because you signed off on it. Now we have a problem and work through that scenario so that you create alignment. So my biggest goal in, in, in my recommendation to any founder out there is to have those conversations constantly with your shareholders. If, if I know that Adam needs a 18% IRR per year and a 3X MOEC, which is multiple on investment cash, cool. Let me understand what that financial engineering looks like so that we're aligned, lockstep. Cool, we went and hit those numbers. What does this mean? Do we need to raise more money? Do we want to sell the company? If you have two parties that have different outcome expectations, it causes friction. And the risk tolerance associated to those two outcomes will completely change and lead to mistrust, miscommunication, and maybe even like wanting to put the pedal down in a way that potentially risks the business more so than the appetite or risk tolerance of an investor. And like, that's what you're hearing right now across boardrooms. You're saying, guys, we are not aligned. You raised the money, that's great. Thanks so much for doing that, but the company's now not worth that. You're spending as if your company was worth that. You need right. to cut those, cut that spend. You need to reduce it. We need to maximize the amount of long-term optionality you have. And so the same conversation is happening at the front end when a company's trying to raise money. Right. They're saying you're worth Y, and you're like, no, I'm worth X. Hmm, that's a divide. Can we meet in the middle? Sure, we can meet in the middle with flexible structure. Meaning, so, hey, prove it. You wanna hit your numbers? Cool. So like the big, the big thing that I'm seeing right now and I'm hearing about is these MRR triggered financing. Right. So right. you're raising cash on an MRR number, which you're getting like some multiple off that. And that's the cash that you have access to. And this and, is why you're not talking like the, the, the alternative financing of subscription-based software where they, they, uh, that's a, that's a different world. You're, you're talking venture world still. Venture world. Yeah. So just putting in some like milestones or, or covenants that say, if these things don't happen, we get on, we unlock an amount of stock that, comes to us to offset the fact that we overpaid um, mm -hmm. based on milestones. And so that, that's been there forever. It's right. just becoming a little bit more vogue right now, right? You also have participation, which means, you know, traditional market um, deal structure is preferred, meaning senior preferred and then common shareholders. Right. Senior preferred means I get my money first and then I have the right to convert into common and then we all spread, share equally. Participation means I get all my money back and I get to participate in the outcome and then I convert. And so that can be a 1X, a 2X, a 3X, and so on. And so depending on whether or not you're shifting from just traditional preferred to a participating preferred or a traditional preferred with dividends that are another way of getting 
basically accumulation of value. So all these things are popping back up. All these things that have been around forever are becoming more structured in favor of the venture capitalists because they have time and they, they know this and they have a little bit more power. And so what, what I've been consulting a, a couple of boards that I sit on as well as some founder friends that are, are in the process of raising, it, it doesn't mean you can't get deals done. It just means you have to rethink how you structure that deal, how much cash you raise. Are you willing to take a slight you know, down round per se and, and again, it comes back to alignment. Now, even if you down round, it doesn't mean management and team can't get re-incentivized, right? It doesn't mean we can't you know, put more options into play and, and hit new milestones. And so there's ways to offset it. And so I'm not saying that uh, I'm Debbie Downer or, or, or David Downer right now. I, I actually believe that this is a great fundraising market if you're a good company. It just means you have to be smart about it. You need to be smart about it. And more important, you need to be educated on what those terms represent because there's some nasty grants that can be slid in that mm -hmm. really have an impact. And, and, and those are things that will never get removed ever again. Once they're in there, the yes. next fundraise is yeah. going to want them to and so on and so on. And they're just going to exist for eternity. <clears throat> Unless I guess you, you use, you slide the word AI somewhere in there these days. There you go. Yeah. If you say you're, you're uh, the next AI engine with chat GPT, just call yourself GPT at the end of your brand and you're, you're good to go. So actually, let's talk about that a little bit more seriously. Um, I'm guessing you're using versions of AI in, 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 in your business as well. Mm -hmm. But the current buzz around AI and Skift has been covering it. I've been um, fascinated by it. I've done, done some videos on LinkedIn on, on, potential, on the consumer side of, uh, of travel, potentially at applications on the travel booking side and how that could change um, or at least could start to change. And so from your perspective, um, the possibilities of AI and travel. Uh, I think it's a beautiful thing, um, especially when you have labor shortage. I, I'm not saying we, we need humans. That, that's part of hospitality is that human touch. I, I think that's what I love about travel most is getting to know culture. Right. I think from a support perspective, right? Instead of having to wait online with a, with a, a Delta representative for an hour, um, I, I don't, I fortunately don't have that problem due to status, but my, my, my EA was trying to call in to help me with Delta. She's like, I'm waiting on a line for like an hour. And I was like, that could get solved by a real time communication engine, right? Mm -hmm. and, and with AI driven. Um, the way a hotel deals with inquiries could be done with AI and have a much better and quicker response time instead of waiting for someone to come back and email. I'm actually really fascinating on how it comes to pricing and positioning for hotels. Like mm -hmm. hotels are not very good at marketing themselves on the internet. Um, it, it, they are very good at spending money on booking.com and Expedia through commissions, but they haven't quite figured out how to be direct and, and optimize their business around search trends. Well, when you have this ability to create content quickly and conform content in new ways um, in working at the speed of light across more computational power than our human brain, that unlocks opportunities in these micro moments. If we think about pricing, um, just the ability to price better for the right audience or even package for the right audience. If I know more about you, I can deliver you a better experience. And there's ways that AI can come in and click out and say, you know what? You want a burger. You just landed in New York. 
you're really hungry. You haven't eaten because you've been on, you know, your, your United flight for, for, for 12 hours and the food sucks, right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm making examples of things that can become frictionless with better connectivity to data and then putting AI on top of it. And we think that's incredibly powerful. So like we already use AI um, for some of our support capability. I mean, we have, you know, 60, 70,000 people logging in and out of CloudBits every single day. And as a result of that, we get tickets. They have, I, I need this question. I have that question. So we already have computational AI mm-hmm. working on helping us streamline that and make that better. But the application on the e-commerce side or the positioning side or the pricing side is endless. Like mm-hmm. I don't, I don't believe that long-term a human will be pricing a hotel ever again in, mm-hmm. in the next decade. You mean revenue managers are dead? I don't want to say they're dead. I think they need to be repurposed for different reasons, right? I, I don't ever believe that a algorithm will price a hundred percent of a rate. Mm-hmm. I think it'll be 96%. That's, I think that's the cutoff. So 96% of all rates could be priced by a computer. There's always going to be some event or something that's local that, that an individual um, won't know, that the, a computer won't know about. And that will break the system. I'll give you a perfect example. There's a street artist who carried in Berlin a hundred Android cell phones that were active across Mite, the big bridge in Mite. Mm-hmm. Um, he just walked across with a wheelbarrow, a red wheelbarrow, with a bunch of cell phones on it. And Google traffic thought there was a traffic jam because a hundred cell phones were slowly crossing the bridge. Mm-hmm. Now, if you actually looked at the street traffic, there was no one on that bridge. And so like, there's an example of an algorithm breaking because a human outsmarted the algorithm. And so I do believe that still will always be the case. I'm not updating my resume. You as a journalist, I don't think need to update the resume anytime soon. Um, I'm, I'm super fascinated by video AI actually right now. There's a company called Cynthia um, dot AI, super cool what they're doing. There's like three or four of them. And just the idea that you can create content faster right. in video form, which people like to consume more just by writing text. And then the, and then the, the human recording like recreates that. That's awesome because I just think that means we can communicate in new ways faster and in a better way. Um, uh, yeah, because I think on the media side, I mean, for us, since we're specialists uh, in travel for us, uh, there's just, you know, I'm not in the, AI as a threat bucket. I'm in the in the AI as an opportunity. Like, what can I do with these tools? Like, that's yeah. that's what's been keeping me up for literally the last few months. Like, yeah. so many possibilities. How can I build a better business or a larger business? Um, I want to come to, um, and that's the whole. By the way, we can have a whole different podcast on AI and travel. Not podcast. Okay. We can have a whole conference on that, uh, which we're working on. By the way, um, the um, on the exit side in travel tech. Some of the, you know, typically, for instance, companies like Oracle, Salesforce, etc., would 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 also would buy in the travel tech space or Saber and Amadeus and others. Um, certainly, the larger tech companies are probably going to sit out for a while. Um, acquisitions, there are their own, they're going through their own layoffs and existential issues and activists, um, activist investors, etc. What's the, from your perspective in terms of exits? What's the state of exits as we sit here in twenty three? Um. You know, from an M&A perspective, there's been more M&A transactions happened in the last year uh, across all verticals than we've seen in a while. Um, I think that's 
more so from a byproduct of lack of capital going into those same companies. So they didn't have access to capital, therefore they were forced to sell. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to see a lot of deals. There's actually a lot of systems that are coming to sale. Um, we had four inbound um, investment bankers reach out to a thing. Here's a transaction. Here's a transaction. Here's a transaction. And they're, and they're in all different shapes and sizes of, of technology. So our prediction is there's going to be a lot of M&A. It's not the best time to sell your business, but it's also a fair time. If you look at historical averages in terms of multiples, we are in the same place we were 18 months ago for a average company. So the average company and the multiples that they would get really haven't changed. What really has changed is the high performing ones have come down and the moderate performing ones have come down. But the average ones have really been historically, they're the same over the last 20 years. And so those investors are selling them at average rate and they're okay with that because they don't feel like they're getting, they're not fire sales. Now yeah. there are definitely fire sales out there. What, what I'm seeing is private equity is more active than ever. The problem is, is private equity tends to have the largest footprint of cash on the, on the sidelines. Yeah. And they're now looking at these publicly traded companies that are, were 30x or 25x that are now in the teens or even in the single digits are like, man, that's a bargain. I'm just going to go buy a scaled business. So we're seeing deal flow shift to later stage for big private equity versus earlier stage and wanting to sort of build them back up. You mean like growth equity from growth equity to like traditional private equity? That's right. And so like you're seeing a little bit of like coming together in that pocket when they were very separate strategies. And, 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 and I, I wouldn't want to raise a fund right now. Like this would be the worst fundraising environment ever to raise a fund. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a lot of deal optionality. And so the, these funds see so much out there and they're seeing things come to market that haven't come to market. You've got these bootstrap founders who are saying like, I've been doing this for 10 years, my whole livelihood's in there. Would I take a 4X right now? I know I could have gotten 6X before, but life was good then. I'll take a four. And then they, they cash out and they have a huge event. And, and I know there's some pundits out there who are saying like, sell when you can sell, just sell. It doesn't matter what the valuation. And I would say that that's, that is not the right answer. I think the right answer is to do what's prudent for your business. And, and there's plenty of data sets that would show and triangulate to what you would potentially get in a sale. You don't need an investment banker necessarily to tell you that. Mm -hmm. You can just go have some conversations with some folks. But I would agree with your statement. I think the Oracles, the Amadeus, the Sabres of the world, they have their own problems that they're dealing with. They're not going to be incredibly acquisitive right now. The bookings, Expedias are shedding teams left and right. They're not going to be acquisitive right now. Um, the private equity firms of the world are going to be incredibly acquisitive, but they're going to be very disciplined in what they buy. And, and that, that starts to shrink down the, the world, right, of, of who's your buyer. And, and that might mean your buyer is time. Like you need to play the time game and you right. need to optimize your business so that you're profitable. You've got great unit economics. You're growing at a nice pace. And then there will always be a buyer. It just might not be the right timing for you to mm -hmm. go get that buyer. And so forcing a sale is the worst thing you can do. Because if you're, if you're having to force a sale and you're running against a time, a time clock, the other party is going to know that. Like, that's the best thing about due diligence. I can quickly say, hey, how much cash do you have on the balance sheet? Oh, you're running out of cash in six months? Well, guess what? The, the other side of the fence is going to slow down their process to 
give them leverage. It's it's not it's just negotiation, and, and unfortunately, that's what happens. And and so like, is that fair or unfair? I, I think it's business. And so what we try to do when we we've bought five companies, we we are always looking at companies. We're trying to find and align with full transparency. So like, we have very very transparent conversations with folks. We'll say like, look, we don't care about what you're doing in that area. We're gonna kill it day one. Like it's gone. All mm -hmm. that hard work gone and like sometimes that shocks the founder like whoa okay that's a lot of transparency but i'd rather scare them away early than buy them bring them in the company and then shock them later and they're like well i didn't sign up for this and then the, then you have a deal that that goes bad so like we try to be up upfront and very open we try to be do a lot of work with the groups too so whenever we pass we provide them a really good snapshot of how a third party would value them all the multiples, all the data sets that we have access to, we, we, we basically give them a snapshot of what an investment banker would do. And we say, here's our lens. This is public information. This is our proprietary model. Here you go. Use that to go make yourself better. And let's talk to you in six months. So that's the, that's the favorite conversation of, of today. I love your business. Let's talk in six months. Let's talk in six months, yeah. I mean, as, as you very well know, in m and the relationship takes time to build, particularly. Yeah. Like we bought three companies in the last three and a half years. Obviously, we're much smaller. But each of those have at least had, I've had relationships with these folks for at least two years before we bought them. And so, so it takes time. A lot, and, I, and I wanted to add to that. Like, not only does it take time, it often takes multiple conversations. So I think... Prior to, and I haven't seen the data refresh, but prior to COVID, the average number of attempts to see a successful M&A from one company, so meaning you have an inbound from the same company, is three times. It's the third time that actually sees the success, not the first or the second time. And that's that relationship. It might not be the first bite. It might be the second or third bite on the apple that ultimately consummates a deal. And uh, I saw a really funny quote. It's like, you know, you don't want to marry the stallion. You want to marry the donkey. The donkey is consistent. It's slow, consistent workhorse. The stallion could look beautiful, but after it hits its age, it, it, it's, it's not as good as you. You don't want the one that always wins the race. You want the slow and steady. And it's sort of articulating the analogy on like fast and strong is not what people are after. They were after the companies that are efficient in good, consistent growers and profitable. And so like the donkey sort of represents that as the animal of choice. Why? Mm -hmm. I don't know. But like, it's just, again, we go back to that pendulum. We were here with these high valuations and that stallion like look, and we swung over to the donkey and the donkey is now in favor. And I think at some point it will become the mule <laughs> and we'll be right down <laughs> in the middle. Um, well, that's a beautiful analogy to to end on. Uh, two more two more meals in the in the world, I suppose. Um, thank you, Adam. This was fascinating. I think I hope um, people, prospective entrepreneurs as well as pe people who've been doing this for a while, uh, on uh, should get a lot of lot of learnings out of that. So, thank you, Adam. And I'm sure we'll have a, a, a another conversation in the future soon. I love it. And if anyone ever has questions or anything, just I, I love I love being helpful, LinkedIn me, whatever, and I'm, I'm happy to answer them. So thanks so much for having me. This has been a blast. This has been the Skift Podcast. Thank you for listening.